listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Welcome back, listeners. I am Dari Brown, and I am absolutely thrilled to have one of my favorite guests, Kieran Rose. He is an autistic self-advocate. He runs uh, Autistic Advocate website. He's a published author, speaker, consultant, trainer, researcher, and neurodivergent educator who offers regular online learning about understanding autistics experiences. Three times per year, I took the course, The Inside of Autism, it's fabulous. Um, he teaches it for the public as well as training for organizations. And I will put links to his website and information on affectautism.com under today's blo um, blog and podcast. And we did a two-part podcast before with Virginia Spielman, which I will refer back to and link to. So uh, welcome back, Kieran. Thank you for having me back. It was, a, it was a very long one the last time, wasn't it? We had to break it into two parts. So uh, we'll see if we go as long again. It, we will. And uh, I will just say to listeners, I love this guy. Like we connected instantly and um, Kieran thinks I'm neurodivergent. So I'll be interested in, and see, you know, what, you know, there's different aspects to neurodivergence and I definitely have a bunch of them. Whether I have a diagnosis or not, who cares, right? <laughs> it's not about that, but we're going to talk about a whole bunch of things. What we won't talk about is what we talked about in the past podcasts, but I do want to mention what we, we discussed in case you want to go back and listen. We talked about Kieran's history being diagnosed at age 23 and everything he went through before and since, inclusion and diversity, the deficit lens of autism towards neurodiversity affirming um, care and um, supports, etc myths, the history of autism and the narrative of autism that exists that Kieran often um, is overspoken about debunking and rightly so, building on strengths, recognizing trauma, ableism, the social model of disability versus the medical model, the double empathy theory, masking and fawning, mask um, nonsense goals that ther therapists often have for autistic kids, monotropism, which uh, we laughed about because we realized that I, I have monotropism a lot going on and on and on about uh, certain things and oversharing, etc. <laughs> Context and code switching and learning from autistic self-advocates. So that last topic, we will certainly get into uh, a bit today as well. But today, what I wanted to cover with Kieran, because we could have, you know, hundreds of podcasts, of course, are functioning labels. So lots of people, they will say to me, oh, your son's autistic. Is he low functioning or high functioning? Why is that not appropriate? Theory of mind. That's a big one because I, I definitely I've had a podcast on theory of mind um, and that's something that's out there that's very misunderstood. And I want to talk about my way of understanding about it. Karen will talk about his way of understanding about it and we'll see if we agree on things or if if uh, I need to be educated myself. Uh, good intentions of autism providers. We want to talk about that because we see a lot of neurodiverse uh, organizations popping up. So the people that are advising, giving therapies, giving supports are neurodiverse themselves, neurodivergent care providers, whether they're autistic or other. Um, and so what does that mean for all of the people that are 
quote unquote experts and have been providing therapy for years and have been working with autistics for years and they definitely have an expertise and specialty but aren't neurodivergent themselves. And uh, if we can, I have a few more topics here, but let's start with those because that's a big, a big uh, to-do list, isn't it, Karen? Well, that's the entire podcast done really now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yep, I think so. 10 minutes on what we've covered and what we're going to cover. <laughs> yeah, yep. Well, Where would I, you I like mean, to start? why don't we just start with functioning labels? So, you know, my understanding from reading self-advocates on Twitter and from what you've said and, and others is that when people say low functioning, they're talking about, you know, they have a child, the child doesn't seem to function, quote unquote, the way neurotypical people do. So they they have struggles uh, with transitions. They they can't they don't want to eat their food. They don't want to go to bed. They scream and yell or they just walk around the room knocking stuff over instead of playing with toys um, in the extreme cases as they get older. You know, they're having severe tantrums, being violent, pashing their head against the wall and all of these things that people see. Um, they say, oh, they're low functioning and, and especially non-speaking. And the problem with that is that it assumes an intellectual disability as well, or that they don't understand what's happening. And oftentimes they're very bright and understand everything that's happening, but there are reasons behind all of their behaviors, which we of course can't understand because the communication isn't there. Um, before I get into high functioning, why don't we just stick with that topic? Yeah, sure. So, <clears throat> I mean, everything that you just said there, really, uh, and a lot of this is around presumption and assumption um, that that we are standing on the outside looking at someone and observing them and making best guesses, hopefully. Um, sometimes not best guesses at all. Um, uh, it depends on how informed you are as a, as a kind of an observer. But but what we have what we have to kind of tease out and unpick here is that what do we mean by that low functioning and, and it's not just low functioning it's low functioning autism or low functioning autistic however people refer to to that that kind of label and when when we use that firstly we've got to tease out what's 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 the person that's using that label what's their understanding of what autism is firstly so if we are looking at autism as an umbrella term with lots of different things shoved underneath it then yeah, maybe you could argue there's there's a reasonable this to that label. But if you're looking at autism as a neurological difference, a neurotype, and then you're thinking, hold on a minute, there's not a single autistic person in the world here that doesn't have co-occurring conditions. So if you tease those things apart as well, when you are looking at someone that you are determining as a low functioning person, actually what you are seeing is an autistic person with lots of other things going on that aren't necessarily anything to do with being autistic and um, there could be physical disabilities going on there could be epilepsy there could be uh, apraxia there could be different extreme dyspraxia you know there could, there could be a lot of different things happening for that person I mean you've, you've been on my training and when I talk about co-occurring conditions I've identified over 80 so when when and that that's that's an inexhaustive list as well they're just the ones that I talk about and um, there are lots of others as well so when you when you're talking about that number of different things going on then is it reasonable to say that this is a person who is low functioning or is it reasonable to say that actually this is an autistic person with lots of disabilities and other neurodivergencies what's a better way of looking at it and then also when we can tease those things out there are certain aspects of 
people who are given that label that can be supported in really positive ways. But when you're not teasing those things out, when you just say this person is a, has low functioning autism, then you're just basically discarding them. You're putting that umbrella label over them and saying, this is who they are. We're just going to invalidate who they are. There's no point in exploring what's going on for them because they're just a low functioning autistic. And then that's it. So there's going to be an expectation of challenging behavior and all of these other different horrible narratives that roll out of that. When in actual fact, it's a person that if you validate their communication in a positive way and enable their communication through AAC or sign or, or whatever other way of, of doing it, um, if they don't use speech, then you can start to tease out the things that frustrate them, the things that they don't like, the things that they do like, the things that cause them pain and the things that they don't. I was at um, a conference. Uh, I was hosting a conference with the Star Institute a couple of years ago. And there was a wonderful, wonderful guy uh, who came on with a support worker. who was a non-speaking autistic who had spent the formative years of his life without access to any form of communication other than pecs. So when he was young, someone had put the TV show The Wiggles on the television. And he had appeared to everybody to become very excited about this show and watched it intently and, and, and kind of was, was making lots of what they deemed to be excited noises and so on and so forth. So everyone thought, oh, he loves the Wiggles. So they put the Wiggles on all the time for him and he would get very excited and make all the excited actions. And then they started buying him Wiggles lunchboxes and Wiggles toys and Wiggles outfits and dressing him in Wiggles outfits. And this rolled on and rolled on and rolled on till he was about 15 and he was given access to AC for the first time. And he was, uh, it was a uh, spell to speak. And one of the first things, am I allowed to swear? Is that okay to swear? Um, let's use just the F word. Okay. One of the first things that he said once he was enabled to speak was F the wiggles because he hated them, but he was a praxic. And he had dyspraxia. So one of the things that people who are uh, who have apraxia of speech talk about quite often is a disconnect between their brain and their body, which is a really good way of describing dyspraxia as well. It's when, you know, your brain's telling your body to do things and it does the complete opposite. So everyone observed him being excited and being happy with the wiggles when in actual fact he was frustrated and hated them. So there was an assumption because he wasn't enabled with communication. This is a low functioning person with no mind of their own. They've got no agency, no autonomy whatsoever. You know, they, they don't need those things because we make decisions for them because they're low functioning. So there's a presumption of incompetence about that person. But in actual fact, he had absolutely valid feelings, was able to express them once enabled with a proper form of communication for him. And it was the complete opposite of what everybody thought. So when we use that term low functioning, we are presuming that the people that we are talking about are incompetent, like you said earlier, around kind of intellectual disabilities or learning disabilities, as we call them in the UK, um, who are, which are framed around IQ. An IQ test is inaccessible to many people, particularly people who can't speak or don't speak. So how do you measure someone's IQ properly when the test that you are giving them is inaccessible to them? But then you determine that they're not intelligent enough for it. You know, so it's all of these narratives come out of that low functioning label. And it's it's just incredibly problematic. And my last point on it as well, it's not a clinical label at all. Not at all. If you go to a doctor and you say to a doctor, my child has low functioning autism, they, if they're a good doctor, will ask, what does that mean? So it's actually a meaningless label.
I'll it, stop ranting. <laughs> no, it, it's, it is something that um, for a lay person, it's their way of trying to connect and understand, like, will your child be able to be independent one day? Will your child be able to function in society? Uh, are they low functioning? That kind of thing. And, and I never take that personally because I understand they don't mean it that way. Um, and then I'll try and educate them and say, well, you know, you know, different things like um, there's no way to know. There's lots of possibilities with. And I think the biggest point that you made was that with the appropriate supports, people who appear to be, quote unquote, low functioning can be extremely high functioning. And that, you know, that's a blanket statement. Of course, there's people all along the continuum. But um, that that's the main point that you made is that if you make that assumption that they can't function, then you won't even try to help them. And imagine what that's like. Uh, <laughs> I have the dumbest example, but I'm thinking of the video of Metallica, the song one, where mm -hmm. I don't know if you know, like, yeah. blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I forget all the words now. And it's somebody that got blown up in the war and they're in a full body cast and they can't move, they can't speak, they can't do anything. And they're just left in a holding cell, I think are the lyrics or something like that. Like that comes to mind because how would we feel if we lost our ability to speak and move? And you know, it's, it's and you can't say what you need to say. Uh, imagine living like that 24 seven and imagine the frustration with that guy having to watch those stupid Wiggles show nonstop. No offense to anybody who likes that show. Personally, I've never seen it, but I've seen what it's, it's about. It's incredibly irritating. <laughs> but it's a children's show. It's a little children's show. So, you know, that's, that's what right, they're Right, right. A lot of little kids love it. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. Luckily, my kid didn't. But <laughs> but again, that comes back to kind of, you know, the, the, the connection between IQ and speech as well, because a lot of the people that would be given that label would be people who, who don't have access to speech for whatever reason. Um, and we have an assumption that people who can speak are have a level of intelligence. And we have an assumption that people who don't speak don't have a level of intelligence. And it's all wrapped up in these really problematic ideas. I mean, IQ is ridiculous anyway. You can change your IQ score. You can practice to pass an IQ test. So what does that mean, really? It doesn't mean anything. It's not anything that's fixed in any kind of space or time. So when you're using notions like that, you're actually, you're building everything on a foundation of sand anyway and, and making presumptions. And like you said, it's you can't, you can't ever predict the future. And even if you can, even if you know on some level that your child is going to grow up and they're never going to be independent, what does that really mean anyway? Because none of us are ever truly independent. Um, but that doesn't mean that their life isn't going to be fulfilling if they're not fitting in with society's view of how people should live their lives. Our lives will be fulfilling if we are able to live them as we want to. And, you know, that that's that's a, a better way of looking at it, because at the moment, you know, we have to go to school and we go to college and we, you know, we, we get qualified, we get a good job, we get married, we have children, we have a white picket fence and, and, and a dog and whatever. And that's the lie that we're sold by society. And it's not the reality of life at all for many, many people. But that doesn't mean that their lives aren't fulfilling. That just means they're living a fulfilling life in a different way, as long as they're presumed to be competent and can make have agency over their choices and understand themselves and all of those things. And it, it's, so we need, that's a much better narrative to focus on because then it's looking at people's strengths. 
and seeing yes. their life through a strengths lens rather than saying, well, that person's broken, so therefore they're just going to be broken forever. Absolutely. And I wanted to point out this uh, relatively recent book by Robert Sternberg, a psychologist, Adaptive Intelligence, Surviving and Thriving in Times of Uncertainty. He's had all kinds of uh, research, as have his students. Uh, the guy that does the psychology podcast, uh, Scott Barry Kaufman, I think is his name, talks about this. He had this amazing interview recently with somebody about intelligence, and, and all of them have basically said, like, IQ and, and the way they measure intelligence in schools is BS, and there's so many other ways. And um, Dr. Sternberg makes the point that, you know, people who are neurodivergent add such an amazing aspect to society and like they're the future like look at what the neurotypical people have done to our world <laughs> look at the state the world is in right now and the neurodivergent people like look at greta like you know making peace trying to get along with everybody like so he really um respects all the the aspects of what people see as intelligent and he himself did terrible on IQ tests in school and he knew he wasn't, you know, um, not intelligent. So he, that was, that he made that his life's work. So there's that whole aspect, um, that whole field of research in psychology that I find so interesting. And I, I have a master's in psychology and that was the stuff that um, I was familiar with in grad school. So I like to sort of come back and kind of draw that in because it, it's where we're at now with the whole neurodiversity mm -hmm. movement, you know, let's look at everybody's strengths and let's focus on that. And, and how long will it take for education to incorporate that? Because people like Alfie Cohn and others have been saying it for years and years and years to blunt to deaf ears. <laughs> it's so, it's so pertinent that you bring that up actually, because I mean, if you think about what, what we're measuring when we measure IQ is actually we're measuring academic ability and academia is set up by people people who have academic ability so yeah. there's an automatic exclusion there that actually you've created something which fits what you want it to fit so only the people who can fit into that that little rut are able going to, going to be able to get into it because you know you've automatically excluded everybody else so it, it, it it's just a meaningless measure i mean you can talk to me about autism all day long and i can tell you all the things about autism that i know and you might deep me intelligent because i'm able to express those things but if you ask me about horses i don't have a clue about horses i know they have four legs that they have a mane and they run and they eat hay or whatever you know but i don't know anything about them so someone who knows lots about horses are they then more intelligent than me or am but, i more intelligent than them it's but that's just on, a member of that's just regurgitation of memory right it like yeah. Um, I think, I don't, I, I mean, we could have a whole podcast on definitions of intelligence, but the ability to think and problem solve and, mm. you know, um, find one piece of information, have information in my head and make a product of something else and mix, you know, that is, is harder to measure. And like you said, how do you measure that in somebody who is non-speaking? And there's so many different talents that people have and, um, so, well, while we're talking about that, that flows nicely into high functioning. So what's the problem with high functioning labels? And here's my understanding so, of it. And then we'll, we'll let, we'll let Kieran rebut my understanding from what I've read from autistics is that, um, let's just say for instance, okay, 
I don't want I, I don't want to use myself as a bad example as an example because I'm not I've never had a diagnosis or anything. But let's just say I they tell me yes you're autistic or something. Okay, well I'm a fully functioning human being who did well in school, who got a master's degree, who did all of this, blah blah blah. Now let's forget about me and assume that there's another type of person, Virginia Spielman, for example. She recently got diagnosed with autism. She would be considered a high functioning autistic because she's done all this and and kids with the former Asperger's, you know, they're quote unquote high functioning because they can speak, they're intelligent, they succeed in school, they do this. The problem with that label is that it assumes they're fine and it ignores the disabilities that they actually have. So um, I will let you describe what types of disabilities high functioning quote unquote autistics have and why it's not fair to dismiss the disability that they have because they also need supports in different ways. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it's a kind of the low functioning presumes incompetence and the high functioning dismisses need. And that's 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 the kind of well, they both dismiss need, really. But in, it's more prevalent in people who are given that high functioning label. Now, to use myself as an example of that, if you go through my life with me, I from the outside, you could you could be watching this or listening to this and you would assume that I can speak eloquently. And, and you know, I, I, I have I play various different roles in terms of what I do for a living and I'm able to have a living and live with a family and have children and, and things like that. So from a snapshot from the outside, everything looks perfectly wonderful and normal in inverted commas. But actually, if I took you through my life step by step, it will be a very, very different story where I have incredible trauma going through my life through various, for various reasons. Um, I've uh, tried to take my own life uh, on a number of occasions growing up, starting from when I was 14 for the first time. Um, I struggled with relationships, um, was completely lost for the formative years of my life, did not know how to connect to anybody. Um, I go through massive periods where I don't speak and that still happens to me as an adult. I didn't melt down as much when I was a child, but I shut down very, very regularly. Um, and I'm of the opinion that shutdowns are far more complex and um, dangerous than the meltdowns because all of your stress and all of your frustration and all of everything just gets pushed back inside. Um, so going through things like that, and again, you know, if you talk to me about autism, I will go... Um, if you talk to me about other things that aren't my area of focus, I will be quiet. And that's because my voice is able to appear because it's something that my monotropic brain can go, oh, yep, I want to talk about that because that's really important. And that gives me the platform upon which to use my voice. I have a massively complex relationship with speech. Um, at home, we, uh, between my, my wife and my three children, we very rarely talk to each other unless we have an urgent need to say something. Um, most of our communication is through text. Um, so somebody... Even, even if you're in the same room? Yeah, even in the same room, even if we're sat on the same couch, um, you know, we 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 communicating through either WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, whatever. Um, my youngest child and I, we actually communicate a lot through pictures and drawing to each other, um, and that's how they express their needs in a lot of ways is through uh, like visual imagery and drawing. So you know, so there's there's not neurotypical style living going on there. First of all, so if you had a social worker walk into 
to the middle of that environment where you've got two adults and three kids sitting in the same room, not talking to each other at all. If they were there most of the day, nobody speaks to each other. What would that look like from an external point of view? It would look like, you know, well, these parents are clearly neglecting their child. They're not communicating with them in any way. They're not doing anything with them when in actual fact, there's furious levels of communication going on. So, so yeah, I mean, I've gone off track a little bit there because this is about kind of our problems and the challenges that we face. So um, I had a drug addiction uh, when I was in my teens, a heavy drug addiction when I was in my teens and a drink addiction as well. And a lot of that stemmed from the fact that I had no idea what was going on in the world around me. Absolutely no idea. I had no connection to anyone. Um, I'd had friends, people that I would have looked at the time said were my friends who were treating me awfully. Um, you know, so 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 there, there, there's lots going on in the life of a so-called high functioning autistic person. Um, jobs wise, I struggled to access jobs. I was very lucky to, to uh, get a job in a school and managed to stay there for a while. I was treated horribly by staff and I did that job for 10 years. Um, you know, so there, there, there's a lot going on behind the scenes that you do not see because you make assumptions about someone because you see them speaking. And because that person might not have a co-occurring condition, which is a physical disability in some way, then or, you know, the, the or, you know, they've been given a haven't been given a label of an intellectual disability or whatever, then you make assumptions about them because you see them visibly doing things that other people can do. And that doesn't mean that they do those things all the time or successfully do those things all the time. And that's the real big difference between kind of your assumptions about someone that you would label high functioning and the reality of what's really going on in their life. I mean, I did a, a, a conference a couple of years ago where I did a talk. Now, bear in mind, I'm a public speaker and, and I can only public speak about being autistic. That's it. I can't do it for anything else. My voice just goes. Um, and I tanked my wedding speech in front of 20 fans and friends and family because I couldn't speak. Um, even though I wanted to. But anyway, I did this conference and there was uh, a young man got up and, and did a talk um, and he described himself as a high functioning autistic. And then he went on to give this talk about the utter car crash that had been his life up until the moment he'd stepped onto that podium, which were multiple suicide attempts. He'd been um, interred in mental institutions, hadn't ever been able to hold down a job, had no relationships and all of those kind of things. And I went up after it up to afterwards and I said to him, like, thank you for sharing, first of all, like I related to so much of it. But can I ask you a question? Why do you describe yourself as high functioning? And he said, well, that's what people call me. So even from his perspective, he assumed that even though he'd had this really, really difficult life, that he was living as a person who hadn't had that difficult life had lived. So he was comparing himself to other people and valuing his worth compared to other people, dependent on what they thought about him and how he lives his life and what their assumptions were. So it, it's just a really kind of, so much stigma comes with a, with a term like that, that, that creates expectations that aren't achievable. And again, often it comes back to academia as well. And the assumptions that are made about being able to access academia and what that means and how you know we're like swans paddling furiously under the water and look graceful and beautiful on the top sometimes you know and it, it, it's yeah again i'm just so, monologue. no but <laughs> no this is very interesting though because i have a re rebuttal to that which um 
I certainly hope is not insulting in any way. It's just a naive curiosity. How is what you described different from many neurotypical people that go through similar situations? So I think about someone, you know, I think of the kids in school that always got in trouble. They didn't do well in school. And now it may turn out that they, they are, they were neurodivergent. Nobody caught it, which is what I think you're going to say. <laughs> but yeah, you know, those kids that always got sent to the back of the room. I remember my grade four teacher would grab this kid by the ear and drag him across the room. Like you don't do, see that anymore, uh, hopefully. Um, but, um, you know, they were always in trouble. Then they get into drugs. Then, you know, maybe to get somebody pregnant or maybe they don't, whatever they, they end up just all of the things that you described and they can't find a job. Um, they might have some friends, but they're other juvenile delinquents, let's just say. Um, so yeah, I guess like, what is the, what's the difference there? The difference is that they've been labeled, you've been labeled autistic versus those people haven't. Yeah. Is that the difference? So, so um, <laughs> to answer that you kind of answered your own question about a quarter of the way through there because there are a disproportionate number of neurodivergent people in prisons so what does that tell us there are um uh studies that show that um a risk factor for being autistic is coming from a poor background so why might people come from a poor background because they haven't been able to access education and haven't got you know so so there, there's 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 context to everything which we have excluded for a very long time you know to say that coming from a poor background is a risk factor of being autistic well, hold on a minute there's context to that but that's never mentioned in the research you know so it's there are levels to all of this and i'm not saying that every every person who got into trouble in school was a neurodivergent person but there's context there which says that actually there's a strong possibility that they might have been that they had unmet needs and that's why they were displaying the behavior that they did or they couldn't conform in that environment because that's not how their brains work and that's not how they learned so they became disruptive or their mask could have been you know i i don't talk about masking like people traditionally talk about masking about fitting in i talk about projecting acceptability so that can be the class clown that can be challenging behavior when people have an expectation of that's how you're going to behave so you give them what they want so there's multiple different contextual narratives around around kind of those kind of things that could explain why there's a kind of a disparity and and literally it's because one person might have been identified and another person hasn't and that could be the difference between those things and it, you know i i was diagnosed at 23 so i went through my whole school life without being recognized as being autistic now i wasn't the person that kind of display challenging behavior i was the person that kind of hid under the table and hoped that nobody ever looked at me or spoke to me um you know but but neurodivergent people can present in multiple different ways autistic people can present in multiple different ways so there's context for a lot of these things and that's why so many people go miss because we only focus on a stereotypical view of of how those things present when actual fact they can present in multitudes of different ways and it's so yeah, so it's it's kind of, and again, you know, you could compare my life to someone who isn't neurodivergent that's had a, a poor experience of life or has, has had a really kind of hard road. But when you're looking at a group made up of millions of people who are all experiencing very, very similar and relatable things, then you know that there's a thing going on there. It's not just that, you know, one person's life is comparable to another, but they've just been given a label and the other person 
you know, that, that's not a thing that exists. They've just been handed the label because there are millions of people who share the same experiences. So we know that there's something happening there and we know that that's a response to the world around us and unable to being able to conform to the social world around us and all of those kind of things. So that's that's where the difference lies. That's the differentiation. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because that that that's one of the, I, I have two paths I wanna go down and that's one of them that I was going to talk about is that if people take the Inside of Autism, Kieran's training course, you'll understand that when people say autistic, in mind, they have the white boy who lines up toys, who's disruptive, who, you know, it's the stereotypical image. And that's not what autism is, is what Kieran teaches. And so I think it's really in autism and understanding neurodivergence is in such an infancy because I think it is related to all the, you know, Sternberg's work and other people have talked about where it's just how do we meet every individual's strengths and needs? And, you know, some of those people are going to be neurodivergent, some of them aren't, but everybody doesn't learn in the same way. And for whatever reason, when all these tests were designed and when schools were created and stuff, um, Dr. Kathy Platzman, a psychologist who's a, a floor time expert training leader talked about in the podcast that, you know, she asked her father, um, what, what did you do? Um, I forget exactly how she worded it, but I'll, I'll try, I'll link back to the podcast where we talked about it in his day in school. If the kid couldn't concentrate, they sent him up to the field to do work because he needed to move. He needed to do this and that maybe that ADHD kid or whatever was doing that instead of studying math and reading books. And it wasn't ever looked at as anything bad or different. It was just like, oh, that's that person does. And this is what this person does. And now, you know, you know, we have this, like you said, the people that were successful at doing and creating these things want more of themselves. And and it's created this image that works for this certain subset of people and doesn't for many others. And and Dr. Sternberg's uh, work showed that, you know, minorities are at a great disadvantage when it comes to IQ tests and stuff. And they, he had um, at, at the university he switched to where they put him in charge of admissions and stuff. They just added two other measures. And all of a sudden, everybody, all these other people that wouldn't have otherwise qualified, qualified for mm-hmm. to get into to the university. So, I mean, there's so much there. We could go on and on forever. Um, I think... I just wanted to touch one more thing on the high functioning thing. So, you know, people that have that autism diagnosis, maybe it's Asperger's from before they changed it, they might have sensory sensitivities. So, um, you know, the more stereotypically understood autistic features. So if they walk in and it's a really loud concert or something, they have to go like this, or you'll see them wearing headphones. And so while they might be fully conversational, be able to write and read and do well in school, um, that's an example of, you know, but they still have this disability that sounds overwhelm them and, and things like that. So if you, if you don't take that into account and help understand that they need certain accommodations around that disability, you're, you're dismissing, like you said, you're dismissing the needs. Yeah. 
It's um, a better way of looking at it, I think. It's not perfect, but it's a better way of looking at it is through the lens of internalizers and externalizers. Mm. So some people visibly externalize their reaction to certain things, and some people internalize that. And some people have physical disabilities that, that you know, that, that impact them, that, that means that they externalize those things. So they're more visible to people, whereas other people will internalize those things or might not have them going on and have other things going on that are part of their internal working so you don't know what's going on with someone just because you can see or not see things and until you're inside their head or you know you know the ins and outs of what's going on with them that it's 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 making judgments and i mean i just wonder like one last thing there and I, i'm going to bring up the word capitalism um, and i promise not to go off on like a, a two-hour thing um but when we're using functioning labels, when we say high functioning or low functioning, what are we actually saying? We're actually saying, what's this person's ability to contribute to society? That's what those functioning labels are actually mean. It's a value label. It's a, you could even put a, a dollar sign or a pound sign next to it to say it's a monetary value label. So when we're looking at things that way, what an awful way of looking at human beings. You know, you're, you're, you're not as valuable. You're not able to contribute as much, so we're not going to meet your needs or we're going to dismiss you. We assume that you're able to contribute more, so therefore we're going to put pressure on you to do so. And then when you can't, that's your fault. You know, so it, it, it's having these value labels is just, it's a horrid way of looking at human beings who all of us have intrinsic value and we all have equal value to each other. We're all as important as, the, as each other, regardless of what we've got going on or not got going on. But yet we assign these labels, which are actually just capitalist values. And it, it's, it's not right. It really isn't. And how would last topic on on the functioning labels what should people say instead so if someone um comes into my parent support group that i run weekly for international uh, international council on development and learning they'll say oh i have a two or three or five or 18 year old uh with low functioning autism high functioning autism or i keep hearing people say level two autism i don't know where these levels come from because That's i've never heard of that yeah it's come from the dsm oh okay um, well i should know that but i don't um so they, they, they put one two and threes in so one means you need less support two means you mean medium support and three means you need they're just functioning labels but they've used okay so there. so okay i'm glad i brought that up because that's another way of functioning so what should or what i don't want to say should but what's a and more ideal way of talking about it because everybody sort of understands when you say low functioning high functioning they get an idea of okay this person needs more support or less support um so that it's understand it's it's a lay person's way of understanding it which has all those problems that we just discussed what's a better way well you just actually gave the answer there so i would um describe one of my children as an autistic person who has lower support needs or fewer support needs um, and one of them would be I have an autistic child who has more support needs so you know it, it's if you're going to be non-specific if you if you're going for a shorthand then that's the best shorthand is to be as implicit about and clear about what you're saying so you know so so it's a much gentler and kind of non-value driven way of saying I have a child that has needs that maybe your child doesn't 
So, you know, or they might have more more needs than your child or whatever. And it's not a competition. It's just about being clear about what you're saying and validating that as well. You know, it's they may have more support needs and that's fine. It's a neutral statement. It doesn't mean anything bad or anything good or anything in between. It's just a neutral statement. I have an autistic child with more support needs. I like it. Okay, um, so this makes me think of something else. <laughs> Uh, so my child just turned 13 and I would say he has low support needs. However, he's quote unquote functioning like more like a neurotypical six year old. So if you put him to the standards of a 13 year old, he's so far behind. He might have intellectual disability. He, you know, there's a lot of things he can't do by himself. But if you thought of him as a six-year-old, not doing so bad. He might be not as sharp as a whip as some of the readers and writers, uh, you know, but but pretty good. So where does that fit in? Because a lot of autistics are developmentally delayed. Um, and when we say that, that's a value label because that's saying delayed compared to who? <laughs> but the whole society is set up based on neurotypical development. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. So I would I would remove the word delayed and say developmentally different, um, okay. because uh, again it's a kind of it's a it's a neutral term. Um, delayed has implications. You know they're slow, um, they're not as good as other people, or you know. And again, it's a value driven kind of term, um, whereas developmentally different could mean anything but if someone you know but again we're talking shorthand here so if someone wants to know what that means then you can start explaining that you know they're they're good at this they're not so good at this and so on and so forth and other children of that age might be better at those things or worse at other things so so you can start using comparisons then but if we're using shorthand developmentally different is is a fine way of doing it because you're right that you know everything is centered on neurotypical developmental scales and developmental pathways um which are kind of arbitrary themselves as well, because I don't think there's any person in the world that plot follows those plot points on developmental pathways. Um, if there is, I'd like to meet them. But uh, uh, but yeah, so it's kind of that difference is a kinder way of saying, actually, my child has different needs to that child. And without having any of the value-driven kind of terminology or thought behind it. Right. And, you know, I've heard Dr. Gil Tippy, who's an expert training leader, um, you know, he works with many, many autistic adults. And in his experience, he said he sees a, a common pattern he sees is that um, autistics will bloom in their 30s. And if he's thinking about, uh, you know, certain boys that have gone through the standard, you know, awful ABA therapy, and then, you know, seeing this and that and blah, blah, blah. And then they live in their parents' basement because the services are finished. And then all of a sudden he sees like this resurgence of um, growth and development start to happen. And, and who cares if it happens when you're 21 or when you're 35? Like, does it really matter? And so, um, you know, he always says, you know, what does it matter what timeline they're on? Uh, we just want to be, you know, supporting and promoting development and um, your child comes into their potential when and how they want to, et cetera, et cetera. We don't need to put that pressure on for a certain timeline. 
I probably butchered, I, mean, I might have butchered some of the stuff he says, but I think in general, I got it. No, I think I've got, I've got the sense of what you said and I agree completely with it. And I think, I think that highlights something that I've been talking about for a while now in that we are, as, as a human species, we are going for a period of reconceptualizing what it actually means to be human because most of our ideology about what it means to be human comes from Victorian times and, and pre that, you know, so it's kind of, there's a, I think we're going through a real paradigm shift in terms of gender, in terms of race, in terms of uh, neurology, in terms of disability. You know, we're rethinking what it actually means because we've realised we don't know anything, and we're making we're still we're still like cavemen scratching pictures on the wall in the cave, um, really in terms of our understanding of ourselves. So, but yet we've got also this mentality that everything is fixed. And that we know everything and this is how things are when in actual fact we don't know anything at all so i think being open to that and being humble around that exactly what you just described there that you know there are there is no one right 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 way of doing things there isn't but we're told that there is and we're we're pushed to conform to that one right way when in actual fact there isn't one at all there's there's multiple different species uh different people that need to do things differently and when you think about it this is where the neurodiversity paradigm becomes so important and i know this is again something that's in its infancy and there's lots of misconceptions around it but at a very basic level what the neurodiversity paradigm does is say that there is diversity amongst human beings now we don't recognize that diversity we recognize it on a very basic level in terms of skin color and things like that but actually in terms of if you look at if you look at flowers there's like something like 240,000 different species of flower in the world now they're all flowers and some of them are recognizably stereotypical what we would recognize as flowers others aren't others don't even look like flowers but yet they still fall under that bracket now they all do things very differently but they have a connected theme in that they are flowers and they grow and they absorb sunlight and so on and so forth we can describe what a flower is and have multiple different types of flower underneath it you can do that in every species of, of flora and fauna across the planet, but yet humans all have to be exactly the same. That's so hubristic. That's so arrogant, isn't it? That, that, that there is no subspecies of humanity in existence on the planet right now or different neurotypes of people who need to exist differently. Everybody has to conform to the same thing. And that's... It's just so arrogant. It, it always astounds me when I think about it that 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 humans conceptualize ourselves as perfect, and we have created manuals like the DSM and the ICD that <laughs> that that kind of that, that that are paragons. They're monuments to the perfection of neurotypical people, because people who aren't don't fit that and conform to that bracket of a gold standard kind of human are measured up against that, and then we're told that we have deficits in humanity in various different ways and it's so arrogant absolutely arrogant yep yep um i think that flows into our next topic about good intentions of autism providers mm -hmm. so um i mean we could go in a number of different directions so karen and i both are very much against applied behavior analysis for a number of reasons it's like training an animal, you're, you're working only on the outside behavior, completely ignoring what's happening inside the child, um, ignoring um, accommodations that might be required and just expecting this performance and compliance. And it can be abusive at its worst. 
And at its best, you have a wonderful, loving, good intentioned person who's trying to help this person function. And because of the good relationship, that person likes to be with that person, gets used to the structure of it, and it becomes a routine and it's and it's not traumatic. Um, but then we go to the, you know, all of a sudden, all of these new therapies are now available and supports. And so your child gets diagnosed as autistic. And now, okay, well, there's Early Start Denver model, which is sort of another form of ABA. There's, you know, um, whatever, uh, all, a gazillion different ones. Uh, I did a podcast with Amanda Bins about, what are they called? Uh, developmental social pragmatic models or something like that. And they're all rated on different things. And, you know, are they more behavioral? Or are they more developmental? So obviously, I talk about developmental individual differences, relationship based model DIR floor time on this podcast, which, you know, where is the child developmentally on this um, idea of how human beings develop as they grow, which some people may or may not agree. Well, that's a neurotypical developmental model, but I think um, it's open to interpretation of and, and uh, um, you know, that people develop differently. Um, but still go through these stages of, you know, first you, you do this, then you do this, then you do this, then you do this kind of thing. Um, individual differences, one of the few interventions, if you'll call interventions is a bad word too, that focuses on a person's individual differences. So that's not just their sensory profile, which is a big part of it, but it's also their family situation, you know, their history, their this, their that. Um, and then the relationship is, you know, 99% of it, you have to feel safe with the person that you're with. So if it's an occupational therapist working on your sensory integration, you have to feel safe with that person. You can't just be expected to do these tasks and, and not understand it. Like the relationship is the big part and, you know, just doing that floor time, getting the, you know, back and forth so that we can initiate these, get these, um, circles of communication going, whatever way they look like, if they're nonverbal, if they're uh, gestural, if they're, you know, just so that a person can learn how to communicate what they need to in the way that works best for them. And um, this type of model, I would say, are at the forefront of being the most neurodiversity affirming because they are respecting that and they're listening to the voices of self-advocates and ICDL works with the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network and there's a couple of um, self-advocates on the very small staff that ICDL has now and really informing um, what we do. But on the other side, there's now all of these neurodiversity affirming therapy, supports, interventions or non-interventions that are provided by people who actually are autistic and actually are neurodivergent versus the others who aren't but have years of experience working with autistics and found what works and are the best of intentions and, you know, not putting these kinds of judgments and assumptions and everyone in between, of course. So, um, while we understand, you know, I'm sure most people have very good intentions, but are they also getting educated in that? So, yeah, maybe you can give us some, you know, because parents are at different places too, right? Like, 
as a parent, you may not want an autistic person working with your child because that scares you and you want your child to be functioning and be able to be in their school and, and be able to interact with their relatives and siblings and cousins. And that scares you to, to go to a you know, neurodiverse uh, affirming kind of place um, versus someone else who's like, no, this person understands my needs better than anybody. I'm going to go to them. And I think the overall thing that I see the consensus from self-advocates is if they're neurotypical, why are they helping us? Nothing about us without us, right? So I'll let you take it from there. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, it, I guess... this, is, this is kind of a controversial thing to talk about because it's touchy. It's a touchy subject. It is. Yeah. It is. And I think something that you've hit on actually um, is... <laughs> That there's a that there can be a, a a gulf. How can I put this politically nicely? There can be a gulf between autistic advocates and parents of autistic children. Sometimes, often, um, and I think so. There's a there's a book that um, is awaiting publication. It comes out uh, next year. That's been edited and kind of co-written by uh, Megan Ashburn and Jules Edwards. And Jules is an autistic advocate, and Megan is a parent. Um, so within that book it's called i will not i will die on this hill um and it's like i said it's coming out next year and it talks about this and it, it's it platforms the views of about i think there's 10 or 15 different autistic people i'm one of them um some of them are professionals some of them are advocates just you know like online advocates and people who have different views maybe and not the same view but all of us have a consensus in that we all want the same thing we want our kids to be happy and healthy. That's it. Um, and we want, particularly for autistic children, we want them to be happy and healthy. So we're all coming at this, we're all ending, wanting to end up in the same place, but some of us are coming from very different places. Um, and some of them, like myself, are also parents. So also can see this. So from my perspective, I see this from an autistic perspective, uh, from my own experience. I see this from a parental perspective because I'm a parent I see this from a professional perspective because I've been doing this for a lot of years um so I can see it from multiple different kind of viewpoints I can also see it from an academic perspective because I'm well versed in research and academia and I've published myself and so you know so I can see it from different angles that we all want the same thing but there's there's different reasons why we do things differently and for lots of parents it's because of the narrative that they are given um when their child is diagnosed or identified even is very very negative and the cultural narrative of autism is very very negative and the media representations of autism reinforce those functioning labels that we said earlier and, and those stereotypes and um, so you know so the, the, there's a there's a lot of reasons why parents aren't always ready to accept advice from people that they see as well you're not like my child um so in actual facts you know I've had that said to me so many times. I had it said to me a few weeks ago, actually, by the parent of a five-year-old. And I said, but if I was like your five-year-old, we'd have a real problem here because I've got kids of my own and that would be really worrying. Um, you know, so I'm not a five-year-old. So clearly I'm not like your child, but I was once like your child. And I've had that internal experience. And I might not know them as well as you do as their parent, 
but I know them in terms of I relate to what they're going through and what they're thinking and feeling. So there's 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 that connection there as well. I've completely forgotten what the question was because I think we just covered you covered so many different bases there. But does that start to kind of Yeah, I don't even know what the question is. I'm just I guess I'm thinking like um you know it I think that it's good that organizations like ICDL that I work for um, are embracing neurodiversity affirming care and listening to self-advocates, even if they might be self-advocates that other self-advocates deem as not uh, as neurodiversity affirming self-advocates as others. I don't know because some self-advocates have been okay with ABA, for instance, in the past or whatever, which others say ABA, condemn it, you know, uh, black and white thinking, it's the devil. Um, And, and then of course, that assumes all ABA is the same. And of course, a lot of ABA now is not really what ABA, ABA, it's not ABA. (laughs) Yeah, but it's called ABA because it gets funding. And there's so many issues around it. But, um, but there are some, yeah, there are some self-advocates, many, that will say, don't go to any place unless the person giving you therapy is autistic themselves. Okay. And, so, and, 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 and let me just add this quickly. So my little thing I would add is, well, and, and this is probably a very ignorant metaphor, and I'll, I'll look forward to you calling me out on it. But I can imagine people would say, well, if I go to a doctor because I have cancer, it doesn't matter if the doctor has cancer or not to treat me. They're an expert on cancer or something like that. A foot doctor that had a foot injury may not have, treating my foot injury might not have had my foot injury. So how do they know? So, you know, there's some value in people that have been working with autistics for years and they have lots of expertise about it, but they're not autistic themselves. Other people say, no, I'm only going to go to somebody who's autistic. I think from my perspective, um, that's not a narrative that I adhere to at all in that, you know, as as a parent of autistic children, you should only be listening to autistic people um, because we do have allies. We, we do have people who are invested in our narratives, as you said, who are neurodiversity affirming. We do have an issue where people call themselves neurodiversity affirming, but they're not really. Um, that's like a that's a whole other aside um, that, that that goes back to other things. But um the best professionals that I know, regardless of whether they're neurodivergent or not, are the people that can hold their hands up and say, what I did previously wasn't good enough and I want to do better. Or that hold their hands up and say, I don't know what I'm doing. And can you help me? Can we work together on this? So they're, they're, they're the best professionals because they're the ones that are open to learning. They're open to doing better. The best professionals are sitting uncomfortably all the time because they know that they can do better and the ones that are sitting comfortably are probably the ones that are really problematic because they're not changing what they're doing and they're not learning and they're not invested in doing better because they think they're doing the best that that, that, that can be achieved at any given moment so when it comes to kind of uh non-autistic or non-neurodivergent professionals working with autistic people i would say that's not a problem absolutely not a problem as long as that person has invested themselves into working with autistic people being informed by autistic people are being truly neurodiversity affirming and also have invested in kind of (laughs) updating their knowledge 
by looking at current research and are on like are using cutting edge research in the work that they're doing and in their thinking are going on training courses run by autistic people you know so that there's they can't become autistic that can't magically happen but that doesn't mean that they haven't got something to give they've got really amazing things to give quite often but those amazing things can be even better because they're informed better so they're the professionals that i would look for so i would never do a blanket like you can't work with non-autistic professionals but i would say work with professionals who are informed and that's the difference that's the kind of key difference and it, it, it's there aren't enough autistic professionals to go around there are plenty of autistic people but there are many autistic people who can tell you lots of things about their own experience about what autism means to them compared like from their life and their internal perspective but there are autistic people who can do that and also can see things from multiple other perspectives as well because that's also their lived experience and that's their professional experience and you know the, there is a reason that very early on i realized i needed to throw myself into the autistic community and embed myself there and learn as much as i could because my story on its own isn't important it's completely meaning it's important for me but for anyone else it's completely irrelevant unless i can incorporate other people's experiences into that as well that's when it becomes meaningful and that's when it becomes a platform so people who are open to learning from autistic people but also recognize that not all autistic people know everything and even you know someone who is a professional i'm not an expert there's no such thing as an expert on autism because there's millions of us, you know, you can't be an expert on all of that. But what you can do is incorporate as much voice as you can and learn as much as you can as well. Yes. So let's describe just briefly the places that call themselves neurodiversity affirming, but actually aren't. So let's look out for what, what's your look out for this kind of thing. Um, <laughs> well, there are a lot of BCBAs at the moment who are calling themselves neurodiversity affirming. I saw one the other day who said that um, they were working for and with the autistic community, um, which I was very interested in how they were doing that. And it turns out they weren't at all. Um, but, but you know, so, so there, there is a, a performative level there of just because someone says something, it doesn't mean that they're actually doing those things. So there's the basic kind of level. And beyond that, it's, I have kind of four pillars. You'll know what my four pillars is because i'm not going to test you on them but um but but you've been on my training so you know the four pillars that i work from so any person that is working with an autistic person young or old needs to be invested in that person's autonomy their agency their authenticity and their self-acceptance that's it that's all you need to be doing they're the, the tenants that you work from when you're working with an autistic person so if you go to uh, some kind of service provider or some kind of therapist or, or whatever, and they're not invested in your child or your, your, your family members or yourselves, autonomy, their agency, their self-acceptance and their, their authenticity, then they're not neurodiversity affirming. They're applying neuronormative standards and want to change behavior. That's it. So, you know, it, it, it it's very, very simple and you can, you know, people will put the most wonderful marketing materials out and they'll say that they do this and they've been on this course and they've got this qualification and whatever and it's all meaningless until you have a conversation with them and you truly get to know that person who's going to be delivering that material and i would also always research what they're going to be doing as well because it, it's if it doesn't apply to those standards for me then it's not neurodiversity affirming and it's not good enough Thank you. That's a, a great summary and a description um, 
for parents to keep in mind and, and professionals who might be listening. Um, watching the clock here, I really want to get to theory of mind. <laughs> so I know this is a big stickler with Kieran. And uh, okay, so here's my understanding. And then we'll do what we've been doing. You rebut and give your perspective. So um, two things. My understanding is that it sort of stems from Simon Baron Cohen's research and it kind of took off and, and you know the idea is that autistics have a hard time knowing what's going on in another person's mind they only have their own perspective and they don't have the perspective of other people of course karen says that's complete hogwash and he'll tell you why my understanding of theory of mind which again i'm no expert professional or educated on it at all just based on what i've read and heard and learned and podcasted about in the past is that it is a developmental stage and I work with the developmental model uh, DIR floor time. So little kids that are two years old don't have theory of mind. And when you say share the toys, they can't understand. They just want that toy. That's mine, mine, mine. And so, you know, they can like sort of comply, like give the toy to that person, but then eh, I want it back kind of thing. But when you get to a certain age neurotypically, um, and in my son's case, much older, he's just starting to get theory of mind in the last, say, five years, and he's still sort of working on it, where, you know, we would go to the indoor playground and he, someone would be building this tower out of these gym, you know, those gym blocks, and he went and knocked it down and the kids start screaming and crying and my son laughs which of course could be that he's uncomfortable and anxious, or it could be that he's, ha ha ha, that's funny, ha ha, you, you know, like, I think it's more like the anxiety, like, oh, I don't want to see that kid cry, but man, that was fun and I couldn't stop my impulse. And so I would say, oh, oh, she's so sad. Oh, you knocked down her tower. Oh, poor girl. Just so he has to think and wonder like, oh, I didn't mean to do that. Or, uh, I talked about this in the last podcast with Dr. John Carpente about music therapy. Um, we were talking about stuff and I mentioned how literally two weeks ago or something or three weeks ago, my son went and kicked a puddle and soaked this kid at, in the playground at school and started laughing. <laughs> the kid was like so upset. But Dr. Carpente said, well, wait a second. That's what kids do. So if you're at the beach and you kick water, that's what you do. It's fun. And lots of kids just do that to tease each other anyway. So is it that he's being mischievous? Is it that he's just being playful? Is it that, you know what I mean? There's so many different ways to read like, into that. Yeah. So he is starting to understand, like if we say, oh, what happened? And he can sort of say, so-and-so didn't like that. So-and-so sad or whatever. For my son specifically, it's about impulse. It's about him controlling his impulses. I had this great podcast with Virginia Spielman called uh, The Little Scientist, where I said, but he does this, 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 and that. And she said, well, actually, it sounds to me like the this, this, and that has progressed quite a bit. He was doing it impulsively, and now he's looking at mama for the reaction before he does it. And now he's thinking first and trying to stop himself before he does it. So this, whether that's completely theory of mind or other things mixed in, 
it is a developmental stage that people go through. So to say autistic people don't have theory of mind is ridiculous. It could be that they don't because developmentally they haven't reached it yet, or it could be that they do because they have, but I know where you're gonna go, which I want you to, is to discuss uh, the outsider's limited understanding of what theory of mind is. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the perfect place to start in terms of, I mean, even even the, the professionals who have been discussing theory of mind for many of years can't actually agree on what theory of mind actually is. Um, so there's no there's no set definition of what this is anyway. So it's a it's it's concepts. That's all we really there's a clue in the title theory. Um, it, it, it's it's all kind of concepts anyway. So um but lots of people it's, it's a lot of this a lot of this comes back to empathy really which which are the same things about taking perspectives and empathy is being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and seeing things from their perspective but lots of people confuse empathy with sympathy so you know feeling sorry for someone so a lot of this is relation is kind of uh, comes back to kind of emotional based stuff which you know there's a difficulty there for autistic people for various different reasons, alexithymia, developmental differences, um, trauma, all sorts of things there in terms of accessing emotions and recognizing emotions anyway. So, so people are confused often about those things. Um, but when it, you said a really important um, kind of two words there when you were talking about your son and, you know, you said like, oh, is that theory of mind or are there other things mixed in? Because nothing exists within a vacuum absolutely nothing exists within a vacuum so when we're talking about theory of mind you have to again i love the word context because i say it all the time because people don't use it people don't look at context you have to look at the context around the situation now to take you through a little bit of a very quick history lesson actually um the theory of mind concept for autistic people actually stems back to hans asperger um, and he he wrote, he didn't use that term, but he was writing about similar themes um, back in his work. And that's where a lot of that comes from, because then when Uta Thrift translated Hans Asperger's work for the first time, Uta Thrift was Simon Baron Cohen's supervisor. So there's a there's a there's a, a narrative arc that's come there. And, um, and Baron Cohen did um, his very first experiment, which he published on, which is where all this has come from, um, which was using the Sally Ann test. So basically, um, Sally Ann is a doll and there's the doll sitting on the table show the autistic person the doll and then take the autistic child out of the room Sally Ann goes in a box and then the autistic child's brought back in the room the box is sitting where Sally Ann was where Sally Ann that's the question that's been asked there now there's multiple answers that you could give for that and Baron Cohen did this with a very small cohort of children it was like six or seven and came up the presumption because the predominant number of children didn't identify that Sally Ann was in the box. But Sally Ann could be anywhere in the room. There's no reason to think that Sally Ann would be in that box just because it's in the same place. Now, for someone who uses logic and has a monotropic mind, I would walk into that room and think, well, the obvious answer is that Sally Ann is in that box, but are they playing a trick on me? So my logic would kick in and now I would assume, well, maybe actually that's too an obvious answer. So Sally Ann's been put somewhere else. Now, just because a bunch of neurotypical people would go, that's in the box, doesn't mean that they think any better than non-autistic, but than autistic people do. So, so yeah, so that, that, was the, that was the whole concept. And now this has been debunked and pulled apart for the last, I mean, this was like 19, 19, 
86, 96. It's like 30 or 40 years old we're talking here, this, this, this whole concept. And it's been pulled apart and debunked and put back together again and pulled apart again. And now there are studies which show that autistic people have lots of empathy and, and can see things from, from, other, from, from other perspectives. And then you've got to, another thing to bring into this as well is Damien Milton. Now, Damien Milton is an autistic uh, doctor who came up with the concept of double empathy, where for many, many years, autistic people have been told that we have no empathy for others, that we can't see things from other people's perspectives. When in actual fact, if you look at a bigger picture, which autistic people supposedly can't look at, but we do all the time, um, is that other people don't have much empathy for autistic people because all other people are trying to do is normalise us and hold us up to neuronormative standards. When in actual fact, that's not our existence and it's not the path that we are able to go on. So there, there's multiple concepts around all of this. And it, it does come to the point that, like you said, sometimes there are developmental differences where, where the ability to see things from other people's perspective just comes on later in life. Sometimes it doesn't come on at all. And that's absolutely fine. But there are plenty of non-autistic people who don't have theory of mind that I have met in my life, and I'm sure other people have as well. So, you know, so the, there's, again, there's context, there's multiple layers to this, but we have a very simplified view. The problem that we have with theory of mind is that it is a theory, and Simon Baron-Cohen has come up with his own concepts and theory, has published books on it, and it's become a big thing in the world, and it's, you know, everybody now assumes that this is real, and it's taught in autism. There is autism training going on right now as we're talking, as people are listening to this or whenever they listen to this. There's autism training going on right now, which is delivering theory of mind as though it is fact. And it isn't. And that's hugely problematic. And it's created whole reams of stigma. Um, and then, you know, I'm not going to go off on a Baron Cohen rant because we will be here for the next three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> But, but, you know, it, it's this, 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 this is something which was an idea and a concept. And this is part of the problem with academia, that ideas and concepts and theories get written down in a paper and then are published. And then the world at large picks it up and deals with it as though it's a reality when it's still only a concept and an idea. And then that becomes truth. If you say it, if you say it enough times, it becomes a truth. So, yeah, it, it's a really problematic narrative. Well, I like it. It was a very politically correct discussion about a theory of mind, I think, um, because, yeah, you made you made very valid points. So um, I know there are other things we would have liked to get to, but our time is over. So uh, I want to thank Kieran Rose, the autistic advocate. Uh, what is the actual email or sorry, website address? It's www.theautisticadvocate.com. Okay, I wasn't sure if it was .com or .org. Or okay, so theautisticadvocate.com. I will put links to it at affectautism.com on the podcast. Thank you so much, Kieran, for discussing all of those things. I always learn so much when I speak with you, and um, I hope we've enlightened the listeners to think about things a lot more. Uh, my takeaway from the podcast today was context. That's That's the point that came up over and over again. And I will really look forward again to uh, speaking with you next time to cover. I'm looking at my list here, but um, I won't I won't give any sneak peeks about it because we may uh, 
you may have other ideas about what we can talk about next time based on today's discussion. So thank you so much, listeners. Tune in and check out the links that we referred to. And thanks so much, Karen. Thanks a lot, Daria. Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day. We Chose Play is a new series documenting my family's floor time journey. You can see the preview on YouTube, and you can register to watch the extended trailer for free at affectautism.com play, or just go to wechoseplay.com. With each episode, you'll glean insights, tips, and reflections, what I learned and what I know now that I would tell myself back then along the way. I hope it will support caregivers in their floor time experience. We Chose Play... We have joy every day.